You know, there are a lot of things throughout history that humans have done that we find quite astonishing, pretty surprising. I was reminded recently of what humans did, what people did in building the pyramids, these massive pieces of architecture. You realize that some of the stones that were used to build the Great Pyramid were transported as far as 500 miles away, and that there are two and a half million stones that compose that one Great Pyramid, and that was all without the use of not even an electric drill, right? All this was done without machinery. That's pretty amazing. We find that astonishing. Uh, it's amazing that humans have been to the moon. All the technology that it took uh, to make that happen. It's, it's astonishing too what humans can accomplish in terms of personal speed. Uh, the fastest man in the world, Usain Bolt, who clocked at almost 28 miles per hour on a thousand meter sprint. Like these are amazing things that people do and we, we study them and we think about them and we, we find ourselves surprised. Wow, that's amazing. But there are also some things that people do that we find unsurprising. It's just we do over and over again all throughout history. No one is ever surprised as they look at history that people do foolish things and sin. That's not surprising. There was a book that was published and it was called The Great Illusion. And the argument of this book was that there would be no more war in Europe because the economic cost of war I mean, and all the damage that war would cause would make people think, I'm never wanna, we never want to go to war, war again. Like, people are not going to fight with each other. That book was published in 1909. Only four years later, all of Europe was admired in the First World War, and the 20th century is probably the bloodiest century in history. It doesn't surprise us that humans act that way. It doesn't surprise us that we seem to be on this cycle of sin and death. Like we're lost in a dark forest repeating the same things over and over again. Like we see the same landmarks over and over again. There's sin and there's death. There's sin and there's death. And we think, are we, is there any hope for humanity? I mean, is there anything that will break us out of this insane loop of sin and death? And that's why it is so incredibly important to realize the importance of who Jesus Christ is. Because Jesus, not just as a mythological character, not just as a person, uh, a legendary person, Jesus as a real historical character broke this insane cycle of sin and death by actually glorifying God in everything he did. He never sinned. He never had a selfish thought. He never did an unloving thing. Jesus always did the right thing. And furthermore, he, he conquered death. Like, like Jesus is the one who breaks through that insane cycle of sin and death and does the most astonishing thing in the world. And that's why it's so significant when Paul writes here in Colossians 3, this passage that we read, that we read here, that, that we have been raised with Christ. Like the life that Jesus forged, the pathway that he took that is unlike the pathway that any other human took before him, that, that we can participate in by faith. That's why earlier in this letter, Paul says that we were raised with him, that we've been given life in him, those of us who have trusted in him by the forgiveness of sins. This is a completely new path for humanity. It's a path that has been forged by Jesus Christ, by his perfect life, and by his, his rising from the dead. Now, the reality that we need to understand is, th is this. For those who have believed in Jesus Christ, we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is talking about in the first three verses of chapter 3. But, 
just the fact that we have a relationship with Jesus, it doesn't solve every problem we have. Why? Because even people who have this new life in Christ still find themselves drawn to their old habits. I mean, just because a person has a relationship with Christ doesn't mean that, that if, if you get treated unfairly, you're never going to get str struggle with bitterness. I mean, just because you have a relationship with Jesus Christ doesn't mean that if you encounter some erotic commercial, you're not going to be tempted to lust. Right? Just because you have new life in Christ doesn't mean that all your problems go away and that you have this, this flawless progress toward Christian growth. And the question that we need to ask then is how do we grow as Christians? Those of us who have new life in Christ, those of us who have a relationship with Jesus, how do we grow? And people can answer this question in a couple different ways. And this is, these are some ways that we tend to think. On the one hand, someone might say this. Okay, I have a relationship with Jesus and so I need to work really hard to keep that relationship, to maintain that or to earn that or to continue in deserving that. And someone who thinks that way might be, appear to be really spiritual or really busy or really aggressive, but that person might be driven by guilt, which might lead to despair or even pride. On the other hand, someone might say, well, I have a relationship with Jesus Christ, so it doesn't matter what I do. And that person, it may seem like they have this really strong grip, uh, understanding of grace, but they may be motivated just by laziness and apathy. That's why it's so important for us to understand the connection here in Paul's train of thought in this passage. We're talking about the topic of Christian growth. And I want to give you just an overview of this chapter right before I give you the divisions of my sermon. So bear with me a little bit as I just help you get a, a mental map of where Paul is going in this chapter. And then we're going to get down to our text, which is verses 5 through 11. This is, what, this is so you know where I'm going, right? So in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, Paul is giving us the possibility of Christian growth. This is how Christian growth is possible, and it's possible because of a relationship with Jesus. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Look at verse 3. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ. This is talking about a relationship with Jesus that gives us the possibility of Christian growth. So verses 1 through 4 is the possibility of Christian growth. And then verses 5 through 17 talk about the practice of Christian growth. Right? Christian growth, how it's possible, verses 1 through 4, and then Christian growth, how it's practiced, verses 5, really, to the end of the book, because we talk about the practice of Christian growth throughout. So the possibility of Christian growth in 3, 1 through 4, and the practice beginning in verse 5 and throughout the rest of the chapter. So we're going to be focusing on, for, the, for this week and the next several weeks, on the practice of Christian growth, answering the question, how do we grow as Christians? Don't you want to know how to grow as a Christian? Don't you want to know how, okay, I have life in Jesus Christ. I have a relationship with Jesus. What does this mean for my life? How do I grow as a Christian? How do I overcome these habits, these old habits of my past life? How do I embrace these new virtues that I know should be true in the life of a believer? How do I grow as a Christian? The practice of Christian growth. And we say that there are two central parts to the practice of Christian growth. And we see these in verse 5 and verse 12. Look at verse 5. Paul says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? There's a negative component and there's a positive component. Look at verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, and then Paul lists some certain virtues. So when we talk about the practice of Christian growth, we see there's a positive and a negative aspect. The negative aspect is putting aside certain practices and habits that are associated with our old way of living. This is the way of living that has to, has to do with my own self-centeredness that's not 
centered under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Put those, put those away. Put those away. That's the negative part. Put to death. Put that away. And the positive part is put certain things on. Are there some virtues that people who follow Jesus need to have? And that's what Paul talks about beginning in verse 12. So the practice of Christian growth, there's a positive and a negative aspect. The negative aspect is putting off certain things and the positive aspect is putting on certain things. Okay, that's kind of an overview of the chapter. I want you to get this big picture because we're going to be revisiting this for the next few weeks as we focus on this whole topic of Christian growth. Now... For this message, we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 11, which is the, is that the positive or negative of Christian growth? That's the negative, right? Because he begins with saying, put to death, therefore, and he lists certain things that we need to put to death. Now, I want to show you uh, some, uh, some interesting and helpful observations about these things that Paul says to put to death or to put off and how they contrast with the things that we're supposed to put on. You notice that when we contrast the vices of verses 5 through 11 with the virtues of, of verses 12 to verse 17, we see that what is listed in verses 5 through 11 tend to disrupt and distort, and what is listed in verses 12 through 17 tends to bring harmony and beauty. Okay, you see the difference. What we see in verses 5 through 11 tends to disrupt and distort, and what we see in verses 12 through 17 tends to bring harmony. Look at this. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is, which is idolatry. These are distortions of what God wants to be true about us. Look at these other things that we see in verse 8. Anger, wrath, malice. These are things that, that disrupt, that separate what should be together. When there's anger in your life, when there's malice, when there's evil speaking, this puts a divide, it puts a wedge between you and other people. And Paul's saying, you need to put these distortions, whatever distorts and whatever disrupts, you need to put it away. But notice the contrast with the list beginning in verse 12. You see what it says here. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. These are virtues that tend to bind together. You see the difference here? The ones in verses 5 through 11 tend to disrupt and distort. They tend to tear and, and, and rip apart. And the ones in verses 12 and on, they tend to bring together. In fact, what Paul says in verse 14, above all these things, put on love. That's the pinnacle virtue which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So the things that we're supposed to put away have to do with distorting and disrupting. The things we're supposed to put on have to do with bringing unity and beauty and harmony. And this, in fact, is in, in perfect line with what Paul has been, the point Paul has been trying to make about what Jesus is doing. Remember when we were looking at chapter 1, Paul is exalting Jesus as the Lord of creation. He's the one who made everything. By him all things were created. Things in heaven and things on earth. Everything was created by Jesus. But things are not now what they are intended to be. And so Jesus becomes Lord not only of the creation as it is, but also as the creation as it should be. The new creation. He is reconciling all things to himself. Jesus brings order to chaos. He brings peace to disharmony. He brings reconciliation where there has been enmity. This is what Jesus does. And we see this reflected in the virtues that we're supposed to put on. But also, I want to point out something that these, uh, these have in common. So I con we contrasted the, ver the vices and the virtues. But notice, when it comes to what we're supposed to put off, Paul lists sins, two different kinds of sins. Sins of lust 
and sins of speech. Sins of lust we see in verses 5 through 7. Sins of speech we see in verses 8 all the way down to verse 10. Now what do these have in common? What is true about sexual lust and sinful speech? Why is it, just think, think about the sequence here. Paul has just said, you've been raised with Christ. You're supposed to seek the things that are above. And then the very next thing he says to put away have to do with sex and speech. Why these things? Because there are few other things in society that wield greater power that have greater influence. And there are few other things that reveal where our heart is. There are few other things in the world, like sex and speech, or someone's approach to those things, that reveal whether God is at the center of his universe or self is at the center of the universe. And that's why Paul lists these things right off the bat, right when he says, okay, let your mind and heart be shaped by who Jesus is, and that's going to mean something for your sexual morality, it's going to mean something for the way you talk. So those are things we're going to talk about. What we're supposed to put away. How we're supposed to put away it. Put it away. The central point of this message. Something that I want, I, if you miss any, anything else, here's what I want, want you to get is this. Your relationship with Christ enables you to put off old habits of lust and sinful speech. Your relationship with Christ enables you to put off old habits of lust and sinful speech. And I say these things because these are what our Paul lists here. So first of all, your relationship with Christ enables you to put off old habits of lust. Look at these words here. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now I say lust here because it encompasses both sexual lust and also lust in general. You notice what Paul is doing. There's a sequence in the words that he chooses. You see the development here? He begins by putting, by saying this, put away sexual immorality and then he gets a little more general but actually what he's doing, he's getting to the heart of the real issue. Put aside sexual immorality, uh, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Sexual immorality is any sexual activity outside of marriage. Impurity, you see the second vice here, is the many things that can lead to and are associated with sexual immorality. Passion and evil desire are two similar words that, that have to do with, with, with uh, exorbitant desire. It's not a sin to feel desire or urges, but it is a sin when the mind cherishes and dwells on them with an intent to fulfill them. That's what's being referred to here by this passion and evil desire. But here's where the list changes a little bit. And here's what Paul's, what's going on. Paul's getting deeper to the issue. He's putting his finger right on the heart of the issue behind all this. Okay, sexual immorality, that's pretty, that's pretty objective. Any, any sexual activity outside of marriage. But then he gets to the heart of the issue when he says, when he says idolatry and, and covetousness, which tells us this, the spring of all these sins comes from deep inside of the heart. It has to do with what we're cherishing in our heart. It has to do with whether we're seeking our satisfaction in God alone or whether we're seeking to be satisfied outside of God. 
That's why Paul makes the connection between sexual immorality and idolatry. Prizing something above God, seeking good outside of God, is idolatry. It's false worship. It is, some, it is a thinking that I can flourish, I can thrive apart from God. And that's what Paul is identifying as the source, the spring of these vices. Now when we talk about these issues here, someone might ask, what's the big deal with, with Christianity and sexual morality? Why is that such a big deal? Some, some might think that Christianity has a very negative view of sex and sexuality. But if you just read your Bible, you'll figure that that's not the case at all. The Bible contains a, a book, Song of Solomon, which however you interpret it, as, as erotic imagery. So no, the, the Bible is not, does not have a prudish view on these things. Rather, the Bible understands something about our sexuality. The Bible teaches that sex is so much more about having children or pleasure. It is about selfless giving to the other in a radically exclusive, committed relationship between a man and a woman for life. That is what Paul is getting at here. There's nothing like our views or wrong views of that that will reveal what is at the center of our universe and what we worship. In a sense then, sex becomes a sacred picture of the kind of commitment that God has to his people. That's why in Ephesians chapter 5 when Paul is talking about uh, marriage, he, he says for this reason, uh, he's quoting the Old Testament, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they, shall do, they too shall be one flesh. He speaks of this, this total person, one flesh uh, uh, union and he's saying this is a great mystery but it refers to Christ in the church. This is a picture of God's exclusive radically committed relationship to his people. Our culture and our society so confused about this. The Bible's view of sex is so high, not so low. But when wrenched out of its unique God-given context, it inevitably becomes distorted and disruptive and a cause of endless heartache. There's another objection that people might have to the, the Christian sexual ethic, the one that's given here, and that is, this is too hard. We live in a culture that, that is promiscuous and almost unprecedented access to things through the internet, through pornography, and all kinds, of, all kinds of deviations from God's plan. That's why I go back to the central point, which is your relationship with Christ enables you to put off these things. It is, a, it is a vital, life-giving resurrection, the, the resurrection life of Christ, and that alone that can enable. You, you look at these, these standards, you're like, this is, this is hard. That's why you need Jesus. Because only what Jesus has done for you can so radically reshape the affections of your heart that you begin prizing and loving him more than anything else. That you can reorient your entire life and all its cravings and desires, not according to your selfish purposes, which is what causes all the disruption and distortion, but according to his purposes. That's why what Paul is saying is, if you've been raised with Christ, set your mind on things above. 
Think about the fact that sitting in the throne of the universe is one who conquered not by selfishness but by giving his life for others. That's what it means to meditate on Jesus. And as you think about that, as you fix your mind and your heart on the truth of the gospel that Jesus loved you so much that even though you're a sinner, he died for you and that by his grace you can be saved. As you think about that, that will allow you to live a pure life. That, that's why life, your relationship with Jesus enables you to put off these old habits of lust. Now Paul goes on to say, that this idolatry, and he, this is idolatry, putting something else above God. And he says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Why this rearrangement of priorities, this prizing things above God, it calls for the wrath of God. Some people object to the idea that God could be a wrathful God. God can't be a God of love unless he's also a God of wrath. God's love for what is good means that he must hate what is bad. And yes, God's wrath does come upon these vices that we must put aside. Now, what does this mean for us practically then? We find this in the, in the very first in, in, command in verse 5. Paul says, put it to death. You're wondering, how could I do this? I want to grow as a Christian. I want the life that I have in Jesus Christ and my relationship with Jesus to, to flow out from me. And, and I do want to grow. Okay, what, what, what? Yes, by focusing on Jesus. But, but here's the command. Put, it, put those desires to death. And you can't only do that in the power of, of Christ, but, but snuff the life out of them. I'm not a big fan of spiders. I don't like them in my house and I certainly wouldn't want them crawling all over me. I, I think I get it from my dad. It's, it's hereditary, right? But if I see a spider on me, I'm going to smash it right away. You know what? Sometimes we're slower with smashing sin than we are with smashing spiders. We'll let a sin crawl all over us. We'll feed our lust before we kill it. Oh, my friend, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you can... By the grace of God, put to death these things in your life. Put them away. Now, Paul says not only that we are to put to death these uh, lust, these issues of lust, old habits of lust, but also he says in verse 8, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. So these are all characteristics of the way we talk, of speech. And yes, some of them begin in the heart, like the, the anger, the wrath, but, but it erupts into what we say. So again, the central point is that a relationship with Jesus Christ enables us to put off old habits, old habits of lust, we talked about these already, and now old habits of sinful speech. What are these? We'll look at the requirements, that is what we're to put off, and then the reasons why we're to put them off. The requirements, here we, here we go, in verse uh, 8. Anger, that is the state of, someone has put it this way, the state of smoldering or seething hatred. Wrath, that is when this hate, when this uh, state of smoldering or seething hatred actually breaks out in actual angry deeds or words. Malice, that is an intent to hurt. Slander, that is attempts to corrode or corrupt someone else's character and intentions or reputation by what you say. 
obscene talk. These are words that by their descriptions, by their, how graphic they are, serve to mire other people's minds in, in the filth that, that is being spoken of. And then lying. Failure to tell the truth. I wonder as you scan your eyes along that list, you realize, man, there's some things that, that I have a hard time with in this list. It could be that very few people know it because you don't show it when you come to church, but you're a very angry person. There could be a recording of the words that went on in your home. You'll be so ashamed. This kind of text messages or emails that you send, that there's anger, there's wrath, there's malice possibly, an, an intent to hurt somebody. What about slander? It's amazing how much we can sugarcoat our slander of other people. It can come in the form of a prayer request. Pray for me, I'm struggling to know how to respond to so-and-so's attitude. That's pretty subtle, isn't it? It could come in the form of a very passive remark, maybe even an underhanded compliment that is, is actually meant to hurt. Paul is saying this, that kind of talk, that's associated with the disruption and the distortion that Christ is, wants to save you from. Let Jesus be Lord of what you talk about. Let Jesus' radically selfless, loving character dominate what comes out of your mouth so that instead of anger, instead of wrath, instead of malice, instead of slander, instead of intent to deceive, there is love, there is constructive words, there is encouragement. We're supposed to, we have to, we have to rip these things away. They're characteristic of our old life. Jesus being Lord of our lives means that the way we talk is going to change. Those are the requirements. That's what we're supposed to put off. But notice the logic here. Why are we supposed to put these off? Paul says in verse 9, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have, here's the, here's the reason, here's why. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Paul is saying, when it comes to the way you talk, when it comes to using your words to destroy people or to slander others or to erupt in rage or to lie, that's not who you are. You are a new person, and you should be living like a new person. Imagine if you had spent your life homeless, living on the streets, no place to live, your clothes are just rags and dirty and filthy, no place to shower and clean yourself, and you're just a mess. And then some, some wealthy benefactor comes along and says, you can be part of my family gives you a place to live in his mansion, gives you a room of your own. The first morning after you wake up in that room, you, you look around and things are clean and bright and beautiful. But then you get out of bed and you look down at yourself and you realize that you're still wearing your old rags. And your first thought is, this is not who I am anymore. You look across the room and there's an open closet and it's full of of tailor-made clothes, clean, freshly laundered, just for you. Here's what you need to do. You take off the rags. They're not you anymore. You're a different person. And you put on the new clothes. 
That's what Paul is saying. You are a new self. You've put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is be renew, being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You've got to understand, you have become a new person. You, you've been raised with Jesus and because of your relationship with Jesus, you can put off these things. Why is lying singled out? Look at verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing you put off the old self. Why? Because the way that you came to faith in Christ was by realizing the truth. By admitting the truth about yourself. That you're a sinner and by admitting the truth about God and that he is holy. And how can it be that a person who has come to Jesus by admitting the truth would suddenly wrap themselves in lies that will only produce division, distortion, corruption. And that's why Paul says, put it off. Sometimes it's not easy to tell the truth. But put it off because of your relationship with Jesus. How does this happen? Paul says it's being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. As you grow in your knowledge of who God is, as your love for God increases, as you realize how loving and faithful and holy he is, then your new person will continue to grow and you'll be more motivated to put off your old ways. Paul reminds us in verse 11, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave for free, but, or, or free, but Christ is all and in all. Here's what he's saying. The kind of unity that you are supposed to be enjoying is not helped by angry, malicious, slanderous, evil intent words. No. The kind of unity that you enjoy is so great. The power of Christ and the appeal of Christ is so broad and so universal that he draws people of every class and race and ethnic ethnicity distinction together. They're, these old distinctions are gone in Christ. Christ is all and in all. And that then becomes the motivation for putting on the virtues. And here's what we need to understand as we grapple with this whole thing of Christian growth, which we will wrestle with the rest of our lives, is Christian growth is possible only in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Your relationship with Jesus allows you to put off those old habits of lust and those old habits of sinful speech. How is this possible? Only as you fix your mind and heart on Jesus. As Paul puts it in verse 2, set your minds on things that are above not on things on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God.